Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. Psalm chapter 2, and please stand with me as we honor our God and reading his word together. Psalm chapter 2 is where I'll be reading from. Psalm chapter 2, we'll read these 12 verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together again. Father, press in upon us the weightiness of the warning and the greatness of the confidence and the calling to be bold that this word that we've read calls for. Let us see the majesty and beauty of the one that it speaks of and if we are still blinded to that beauty, even now, God, be merciful. Be merciful. Let the sinner take refuge in Christ today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. We began a series of messages in the Psalms I'm not going to preach all the Psalms. Dana said, why don't you start with Psalm 1? And I said, well, it's not, I'm not going to preach a message on all the Psalms. The title of the series of messages, the gospel and the Psalms, we're going to be looking at different types of Psalms to see how those different kinds or types of Psalms reveal God's plan, the gospel, the good news. And one of the Psalms is, one of the types of Psalms is called the royal Psalms. Psalms that speak about the kingship of God's anointed which later became known as the Messiah, which we interpret in the New Testament as Jesus. God, the gospel begins with God, and God is king, ruler of all. And God had chosen a nation for himself, this people called Israel, that he might show the rest of the world what it's like to have God reigning over you as his chosen people, king of all kings. 
The people rejected God as king and they wanted a king like all the nations and so he gave them Saul, a king that was literally tall like the Philistine kings but was wicked like the nations as well. But later God gave him a king after his own heart because it was in God's plan to give him an earthly king to extend his plan, plans and purposes in the world. And that man's name, of course, was David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, we read about that. If you turn there or listen carefully, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, and, the, and following, you can read about God's promise to David. David had a plan that he would build God a house, a place where they could put the Ark of the Covenant and it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, that God actually had plans for David. And verse 8 says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. So God says to David, I'm going to make you prince. I'm going to make you a king. I want to make you the ruler of my people. And if you read on in those verses, you can see the extent of that kingdom was that it was to rule over the entire earth. That nothing could prevail against this kingdom. That one of those descendants of David would always be up on the throne of the nation of Israel, God's people, God's kingdom. And when we read these words in this psalm, what you're reading here is David, in context, looking back upon his coronation, his installment, his inauguration. You've seen the inaugurations of presidents on television and so forth, so you can imagine the, the pomp and circumstances and all the things surrounding this. He's being installed as king, and so David, inspired by God, recounts about God's promise to him to make him king. But the thing is, when you read this psalm, you think to yourself, David's saying some incredible things that God had promised yet are not fulfilled in the life of David because David dies and after his son Solomon's reign the kingdom of God the kingdom of, of Israel is split in half Israel is waylaid by the nations the nations do rage against Israel and they don't rage vainly as is questioned in verse 1 they succeed at least temporarily Israel is destroyed Israel is placed in exile. And so when the people of Israel looked at Psalm chapter 2 and sang this psalm, they had to sing it in the expectation that God would send Messiah, the anointed one, the descendant from the direct, directly from the line of David who would fulfill these promises. And the New Testament writers look and they say, Jesus is him. Jesus is the king. The only one who can fulfill God's promise to David is Christ. Only Christ can fulfill Psalm chapter 2. So indeed, it's a psalm about David, but it's a psalm that's fulfilled only in Jesus. Christ is the king. And the main point of this psalm is this. As David thinks about how God's installed him as king, and, and made this promise to him, he says, he says to the people, he's praising God, he's singing to God, and he's saying, why would the nations rebel against me? Why would the nations, because to do so, to rebel against God's anointed, which was David at the time, is to rebel against God. How foolish is that? How vain, what a waste of time that is. But ultimately, this is only fulfilled in Jesus. So the main point of this psalm, it seems to me, is this. 
It's foolish to continue rebelling against Christ. It's simply a vain thing. So the question that the psalmist asked in verse 1, why, you see it, why do the nations rage? Why are they so furious? Why do they plot to try to take over God's anointed, to take over God's kingdom? It's a foolish thing to do. But why do the nations do so? And that's what I want to seek to answer through this passage of Scripture. I believe it answers it for us. Four things. The nations, number one, the nations do not want the rule of Christ. Plainly. Don't you see that in verses 1 through 3? The nations don't want the rule of Christ. Do you remember the story of Samson and what they did to Samson once he gave in to Delilah's uh, badgering him all the time? Oh, if you really love me, you tell me what the secret is to your strength. If you really love me, boo-hoo. And so finally he told her the secret was his long hair and they cut his hair, gouged out his eyes, bound him with cords. She said again, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but with his hair had been cut, he could not break the bands and the cords. And that's the word that's used here. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers against counsel together. What is it they say in verse 3? Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Like Samson, the nations looked upon Israel and Israel's king as binding them. Just like Samson was bound by cords. Just like the, the, the sacrifice that was made before God would be bound to the altar with cords and wrapped and so that it would hold it tightly in place. That's the word that's being used here. So the nations, the reason they rebel against Christ and, and it's vain to do so is they don't want the rule of Christ. They don't want Israel and its old covenant rules in the context of David. And when Jesus comes, who is the descendant of David, they don't want the Jewish people. They don't want Jesus' fulfillment of the old covenant. They don't want his interpretation of the law that actually goes to the heart. They see Christ and and God's people as bondage. They want freedom. They want what's called many, the freedom of the will. We want to do what we want. But as another writer says, it's the bondage of the will. They're in bondage, and they don't even know it. They think to be free from Christ is to be free, but to be in Christ is to be free indeed. The nations don't want the rule of Christ, and so they rebel against Christ. They don't want people telling us what to do, do we? We don't want people telling us what to do. It's one reason I got out of the army. Tired of being bossed around all the time. And I found out, no matter what, where you're at, everybody's going to boss you around. Everybody's your boss, just about. The nations don't want the rule of Christ. And maybe that's your problem this morning. It's all of our problem, really, because we still fight this, don't we? Letting Christ be king. But maybe, maybe the reason you've still not yet become a Christian because you really just don't want, you want to do your own thing. You want to keep on doing your own thing. Secondly, the nations don't see the glory of God in Christ. The nations don't see the glory of God in Christ. We're told by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so was it in David's day. They were blinded from the glory of God 
who had appointed his anointed, which at that time was David, and which later is Jesus, the fulfillment of it. They were blinded to this. All they could see was a human guy named David. And when Jesus came, all the people of the earth, all they could see, apart from grace, is a man that looks like them, and a weak one at that in his appearance, blinded to the glory of God in Christ. The reason I say that, if you look at your Bible, notice what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What is it that's so glorious about God? He sits in the heavens. Notice his posture. The nations gather together. They seek to rebel. God Almighty looks upon our rebellion, but the Lord sits. He's not standing up. He's not fretting. Oh, what am I going to do? He sits in the heavens because he rules. He reigns upon his throne. He says in the Psalms, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. He sits in the heavens. Yet he's not in the heavens. Why do we say the Lord is in the heavens? Because we can't think of anything so vast to help us understand where God may presently reign. But in fact, God doesn't reign up in space, folks. He reigns in the sphere. He created the heavens, you see? And he existed before the heavens were created, so he had to exist somewhere before the heavens were created, the, the earth and the atmosphere and everything else. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 113, verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations, and his glory is above the heavens. We say, why do you say this, preacher? Why do you draw attention to the fact that it says he sits in the heavens? Because the God to whom we will give account is infinitely glorious. We can't even fathom where he is. He's not contained by a physical place or time or space. We just have to use human language in scripture accommodates our finite understanding of the glory of God. And the one who sits in heavens, in the heavens, looks upon men whom he's created, and what does he do? What's your Bible say? Well, he laughs. He's not laughing because they're rebelling. Sin is no laughing thing, no laughing matter. He laughs because he pities. It's a pitiful thing. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 40 that the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Just imagine a drop in a bucket. That's what the nations are like to him. The Bible tells us the nations are less than nothing before him. Less than nothing. The nations are like grasshoppers, it says in Isaiah 40. Like tiny little grasshoppers. One commentator said, man's rebellion against God and his Christ is like an ant trying to attack an elephant. Or like a man looking up at the sky and trying to rip the sun out of the sky with his bare hands. What a foolish, vain thing. Why is it then that man, man, man continually and vainly rebels against the living God? Because he doesn't want Christ to rule over him and he does not see the glory of God. He does not believe in the glory of Christ. He is blind to this. He doesn't realize how glorious this God is. Or he imagines God to be less than who he is as a God that will accommodate sin and just let everybody into heaven who is not a holy God and not a just God. 
So the God in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. He laughs. Man is blind that this is God's doing. Look at what the Bible says. Look at your Bible. He holds them in derision. He speaks to them as wrath. He terrifies them. And in verse 6 he says, As for me, I, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what is it that the nations are seeking to do? They're seeking to rebel against Christ, God's anointed. David was the type. Christ is the anti-type. He's the real fulfillment of that. They're seeking to rebel against the, the Messiah, the anointed, against Jesus. And it's vain, it's a vain thing because God is glorious and this glorious God whom we can't even imagine where he is or how glorious he is because we're so finite and small, we're like grasshoppers in his sight. We need to understand that this God is the one who has set this king. He laughs because you can't do anything. I have set my king. This is my king. See it in verse 8? As for me, I have set my king. This is his sovereign plan. It cannot be usurped. It cannot be undone. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Let, the, let there be light. And there's light. And God saw that it was good. Everything God does is going to happen. He says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I have set my king. Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, this psalm, Psalm chapter 2, so that we understand how explicitly, clearly, this is speaking of Jesus, and we're not just imposing this to be speaking about Jesus. As we look in the New Testament, we can see the writers of the New Testament understand it was, it was speaking of Jesus. Written by David, as it says in Acts 4.25, but speaking of Jesus. Look with me. Acts chapter 4. Verse 27, for truly in this city, right before these verses, what's happening is they've quoted, the Luke is quoting from Psalm chapter 2. And he says about the Gentile nations raging, he says in verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan and your plan had predestined to take place. So here, here's what happened. Here's how this Psalm chapter two is fulfilled. The nations rage. Jesus comes. He proclaims the message of the kingdom of God and they rage against him. The Jews have him arrested. Herod and his men laugh and mock at him even though they find no sin in him. And they crucify him. Yet the Bible says, God says in Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill. This is my king and my holy hill. This is my sovereign plan. And we're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The nations can't do anything. Even the wicked things the nations do fall within the providence of a sovereign God. The cross was ordained by the living God before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. The nations have not succeeded. They've actually been used by God to do his work. 
yet without God being responsible for sin. And the nations are blind to it. They're blind that this is God's doing. And they're blind to who this king is. This is my king, it says in Psalm chapter 2. My king. Well, the nations see, okay, this is, when Jesus comes, he's crucified. This is God's crucified king. This is foolishness. And so, people today still rebel against Jesus. Just like Saul did in Acts chapter 26 before the Lord got a hold of him. He's breathing out threatenings against the church. He's hauling Christians off to be killed. He's furious, the Bible says in Acts chapter 26, when he thinks about Jesus being the Christ. What a foolish thing that is in his mind. He rages against the church because he's blind. He's blind to the glory of Christ at that point until the Lord gets a hold of him. Brothers and sisters, why is it that we don't rage against Christ as the rest of the nations? Why do we not rage against the nations? Why don't we rage as the nations do against Christ? Because God looked upon us as he did Saul on the road to Damascus and God said, let there be light. That's what happened. God looked at our rebellion and said, let there be light. And we suddenly saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. I love the hymn that we sing sometimes. As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. As I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. And it's all grace. Apart from his grace, we would continue rebelling against Christ. And we wouldn't want the rule of Christ. We'd see it as bondage rather than freedom. We wouldn't see the glory of God in Christ. And there's a third reason the nations continue to plot and men continue to rebel against Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. Is the nations don't fear the wrath of Christ. They don't see the glory of God in Christ, so why fear the wrath of Christ? He's crucified after all. Well, if you notice back in Psalm chapter 2, verse 5, after the Lord is depicted as laughing at the nation's foolish rebellion, the Bible says in verse 5 that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why is that a furious word? Why is that to send chills down the spine of those that rebel against God? Because this one that they've raged against and crucified that they just see as a dead king has risen. And they crucified him. They rebelled against him. But he's risen. And they should fear the wrath of the one who has risen. And it tells us in verse 7, if you look in your Bible, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So let's think about verse 7 real quick. Who's this talking in verse 7? The Lord was speaking, God the Father it seems in in verse 6. But it seems in verse 7 in its immediate context that David is the one who begins to speak and says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Many times in that day, 
when someone became king, they were referred to like to be a son of God. But of course, we know that this was merely a title for him, but it was not his identity, right, for David. In fact, the son of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Bible says, I will tell a decree, the Lord said to me, you're my son, but today I have begotten you. What does that have to do with Jesus being risen as I just spoke about? Well, we have to look again in, Acts, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13. And notice it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, speaking again and quoting from Psalm chapter 2. And we bring you the good news, what God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. You see that? By raising Jesus, as also it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what's going on when Jesus is risen? He's being, when Jesus is raised as king, he's being raised as king. He's being raised to be exalted. And when Jesus is raised He's being installed as king over all things. And the nations who saw just a dead Christ, just a dead Jesus, should fear the wrath of Christ because he rose again. And he reigns as king. Christ the king has risen and Christ the king is reigning. Look at verse 8 in Psalm chapter 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. So David says, that the Lord told him, if you just ask me, I'll make, I'll make all the nations, all the kings of the world be subject to you. Now how can Christ fulfill that? Didn't, isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he already have ownership of the nations and rule the nations? Yes, but he came and took on flesh. He became a man. And so in order as a man for him to rule the nations, what had to happen? Well, remember what the old devil said? To Jesus in Luke chapter 4, when he tempted him in the wilderness, one of the temptations was, look at all the nations, the devil said. All this has been given to me. The devil's a liar. The devil said, look at all this, Jesus. If you'll but bow to me, it's all yours. As a man, Jesus, you can have it all. And you won't have to go to the cross to get it. The terms that God the Father had set forth so that Jesus is the God-man who could rule the nations is that he must go to the cross and he must rise again. And what does Jesus say to the disciples when he commissions them to take the gospel to the world? Having risen from the grave, he says, all authority has been given to me because now he is reigning as king. The Lord Jesus Christ that we got up early this morning and could be laying in beds, laying in our beds, but instead we got up to, to, to worship together this morning and we're seeking and we're laboring and we're, we're tired and we're sweating and we're persecuted sometimes and, and sometimes we're, we even maybe have fleeting doubts come to our mind. He reigns as king. He's got all authority. But the nations don't fear the wrath of Christ. They don't see that he has all authority. They don't believe he's risen from the grave. Christ the King has risen. He is reigning. And Christ the King is returning. Look at verse 9. Look at what he says. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Did David do that in his day? He had some victories. 
Did his descendants have those kind of victories? Some of them, but ultimately they went into captivity. So here comes Jesus. They're, they're looking for the Messiah, the one that fulfills Psalm chapter 2. And the Jews say, and hear about Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man, claiming to be the Christ. And he doesn't come with a rod of iron bashing the nations. And close as he gets to it is running people out of the temple one day with a whip, right? They just see a man. But one day, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19 that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has risen, fear his wrath. You who rebel against him, which is all of us outside the grace of God, he is risen. You who, fear his, who don't fear his wrath, he reigns and he's returning. He will not return meek and mild. He's returning to judge the nations. And you will not escape the wrath of God if you're not trusting only in Jesus Christ. And neither will your neighbors or your friends who don't believe in Jesus. And neither will people that never even heard of Jesus escape the wrath of God. For even though they've not heard of him, they rebel against the Lord and are accountable for their sin. The nations don't fear the wrath of Christ. So they rage in vain. They keep on rebelling. And so would we if it were not for God's grace. And fourthly and finally, the nations don't, they don't know to take refuge in Christ. It's, the nations continue to rebel against Christ. People continue to rebel against Christ. They don't see the glory of God in Christ. They don't want the reign of Christ or the rule of Christ over them. They, they, don't, they don't fear the wrath of Christ. And they don't even know to take refuge in Christ rather than rebel. They don't even know that they can have refuge in Christ as we see in verse 12 of Psalm chapter 2. But notice the gracious warning of God. This is God who gave us Psalm chapter 2. He's the, he speaks these words. When we read these words, we're hearing God speaking from this place we don't even realize or can fathom where he is. He's speaking from the heavens that he created. And he's saying to them, be wise and be warned. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. He says, listen to this, this compassion, compassionate plea of God to you, to me. To the very nations that rage against him, these kings, he says to them, be wise. He warns to him, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, verse 11, and rejoice with trembling. Lay down your weapons. Cease with your plots. Put up the white flag. Surrender. Or you're going to die. Surrender or die. But it's not just surrender or perish. You see that in your Bible. It says, verse 12, kiss the son. That means pay reverence to God's anointed. Pay reverence to Jesus. Honor him as king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Surrender 
or die. But then he says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Serve him with fear and trembling. Rejoicing with fear. The gracious plea of God here is that they might repent, not just so they can put up the white flag and say, we surrender, we'll become your prisoners. (laughs) Certainly that's what they deserve. If even that, they deserve to perish, we deserve to perish. But instead, blessed are all who take refuge in him. What's that mean? What's the promise to God's people? What's the promise to the nations that every knee who bow before him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? That those who trust in Christ, take refuge in Christ, they flee the rebellion as we have by grace, don't just become prisoners of war, but become sons of God. I love what J.I. Packer said, I've quoted last Sunday night. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. And such is true for all who rebel against Christ, as they will but trust in the Lord's anointed, trust in the Lord Jesus. Continue in your sin, continue being religious, just playing the game, going through the motions of church, and you will perish. Take refuge in Christ, trust only in Jesus, put all your hope in Him. Become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are blessed beyond measure. The nations continue to rage. There's some application here for the church as I close. The nations continue to rage today, do they not? Political nations, all people rage against the Lord who do not know the Lord. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4 verse 29. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. After quoting from Psalm 2 and verse 25 and 26, and after John and Peter are released from being arrested for proclaiming that Jesus is the reigning and ruling king in the very city in which he had been crucified, but now he has been raised, the people get together And they pray together. And their response is this in Acts chapter 4 verse 29. And now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, the people see that the nations raged against Jesus and crucified him, but he's risen again and he's reigning as king. And this is why this man that has been healed that Peter and John just ministered to because Jesus reigns as king. And the nations are continuing to rage even though they've crucified Jesus. They still don't see the glory of God in Christ. They're continuing to rage and so they're going to rage against Jesus' people. They're going to rage against the church. That's why Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? You mess with Jesus, you're messing with his body, his people. And so they pray. In light of this, they understand, Lord, the nations still rage. And brothers and sisters, America is one of them. All nations rage against God. All nations rage against All men rage against God. 
And our response should be to see that the nations don't even know that they could take refuge in Christ. And that as our merciful God pleads and says, be warned, be wise, that we would be the instruments of that warning. And along with God's people here in verse 29, we might say, oh Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That our response would be to speak boldly of Christ. As the kids' classes I visited this morning were learning in Sunday school about Esther. As Esther said, if I perish, I perish. May God's people have such confidence in the gospel and confidence in Christ that we would know that if we perish, we perish. But we won't eternally perish. For no man can pluck us out of his hand. So our response in light of Psalm chapter 2 church that we would speak boldly of Christ. We'd think about who's your one or who's your ten or however many the Lord's putting on our hearts and we would speak boldly of Christ. We'd make Christ known. And that we would continue to take refuge in Christ. Continuing together in prayer. On Monday nights or at Brandon and Crystal or Brandon and Jill's home this Thursday. Continuing to trust in the word of God. You see, little children, we win. We've already won in Christ. All this mess of your past week because of your own sin or the sin of other people or the sin of of just living in a fallen world, your wrestlings, your seeking to persevere and glorify Christ, your guilt that you feel this morning for, for having yelled at the kids yesterday or kicked the dog on the way to church this morning, all this battling to be Christ like in a sinful world. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we continue to just trust in Christ. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. We take refuge in Christ. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, has been laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What, what more can he say? The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So take heart, children of the living God who fled for refuge in Christ. Christ wins. We win. We've won. Keep trusting in Jesus. And let your confidence in Jesus lead you to boldly live out who Christ is and proclaim him to this lost world that do not fear Christ, who don't want the rule of Christ, that don't see the glory of God in Christ, would just soon be left alone because they don't know that Christ could be their refuge. Let's pray together. Our Father, We thank you for being so merciful to us that the raging of our hearts for those of us who are believers has ceased. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God. Until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.